You're listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Welcome back, everyone, to the Primary Medicine Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Sam Garvey. Uh, he is an internal medicine doctor out of Vancouver, British Columbia. He has a career spanning the East Coast of Canada, so Montreal, all the way to the West Coast of Canada, Vancouver. He has been in the U.S., has also been in Europe. So he has a lot of exposure and experience with different healthcare systems and different issues um, around the world. He's also co-founder of ARIA Health, an EHR and a system that aims to help doctors manage their patients' records in a simple, intuitive, and efficient manner. He's an accomplished clinician. He is an author, like couple of books on Amazon. And most importantly for today's topic, he is an innovator and problem solver. And the reason I wanted to talk to you, Sam, is um, obviously we're recording this in January 2022 um, in Canada. COVID is still raging on um, two years in. It's putting a lot of strain on the healthcare system, especially where I am in Quebec. And I think we need problem solvers. Because the system has issues, it's always has it had issues, but they've been amplified by the pandemic. A lot of those problems, I can't even see a way out. So I'm really interested to talk to you because uh, you probably have a way out. And I just want to have your opinion on, on some of the problems that you've solved, some that you're trying to solve. And maybe if we have time later on in the podcast, we can talk about your vision of the future of medicine, uh, healthcare in Canada, maybe if you're really ambitious in the world. So Sam, can you can we just begin? Maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, no, thanks, Dimitri, for having me on the podcast. And um, you know, uh, essentially, in terms of to answer that question, you know, I'll give you a, maybe a, the short of it is that I I grew up in Montreal. Um, you know, my parents and I, when I was very young, moved here uh, from Iran, so we immigrated to Quebec and grew up in Montreal on the West Island. Um, I went to McGill for undergrad and med school. And I never thought I'd actually leave Montreal through and through. And then you grow up, you become an adult, you go into healthcare in Quebec and you see certain things and experience things. And you say, well, maybe, maybe there's a better way to provide healthcare. Let's see how other people are doing it. And uh, I actually ended up moving to California, going to UCLA for a year for uh, an internship here. And that was back when there was a strike uh, in Quebec. The doctors went on strike and said, hey, we're not going to teach the students and residents anymore. And so a lot of us said, well, let's, uh, you know, we can't just sit idly by. And it was a great experience where I was able to see how American healthcare is provided for better or for worse, but it is different and it does do things that are, that are better than us. I know it's often vilified, but um, there's always good and bad. And then, you know, throughout my training, I also spent some time in the south of France. Um, through the IFMSA, they had these uh, internships for students, and I was lucky enough to get one where you know, they said, hey, pick anywhere in the world you want to go to. And, you know, we'll fund it for a couple of months to go work in those hospitals. And uh, I had always heard how healthcare in France was one of the best in Europe. And so I kind of thought to myself, well, let's go here and let's see how healthcare is provided. Uh, and that was an incredibly insightful experience. And again, it was better in some ways and it was worse than others, you know, compared to how we do it back in Canada. And, you know, very early on as a medical student, it kind of, you know, it was a huge motivator for me, not just learning the craft of medicine, but it was very interesting to see how we provide healthcare and, you know, in a lot of ways, how we could do it so much better. Um, and, 
you know, that drove a lot of my decision making in terms of where I trained and how I went for different electives and internships all over the world as much as I could. And ultimately, I ended up in Vancouver, Canada um, for my residency at uh, UBC, partially because it's such a Vancouver, such a beautiful place. Um, and it was nice to, you know, I came up here for an elective one summer and I remember thinking, oh, man, this is this exists in Canada. This is such a beautiful city. And uh, I've been lucky enough to be here since that time um, where I practice uh, internal medicine here in the community. And, um, you know, when I finished my training, actually, I went back and my, my biggest fear at that point was, oh, is this it? Is this after 12 years of training? Am I just staff? And, you know, um, is there am I going to keep growing as a person, as a clinician? Can I do something meaningful or even more meaningful than just providing day to day care? I know that's important, but as we all know, the healthcare system in this country and, and all over the world um, can be improved. And so I went and I did a master's in health informatics. Uh, I did that in Portland, Oregon. So uh, partially a good excuse to be in Portland, beautiful city, great spot. And uh, really back then, this was 2012, I think. Um, you know, I remember when, uh, when I mentioned to the folks here at UBC that I was going to go do that master's, they kind of scratched their heads and they said, health informatics, why would you do that? Go do uh, an MBA or MPH or the usual stuff that folks do for added value. And I remember saying, well, technology is really at the forefront of what's changing the world, changing the way that we provide care and healthcare. It's, it's, it's a no-brainer to say, hey, listen, you know, we can do improvements in education, we can do improvements in administration and logistics and everything else. But I think technology is going to be at the forefront of how we can improve delivery of care, just as it's disrupted all these other industries. So I went and did that master's and came back and... Um, I started a uh, company called The Virtual Ward pretty much within a couple months of being staff and seeing how poorly handover was going on in the hospital. I remember a lot of the time you'd come in on a Monday morning and you'd say, hey, where's, where's the patient list? Where's, where's details around who I need to see? And often it was just a list on a computer that you printed that was in alphabetical order and order of where the, the patients were located. And you just, you know, sauntered through the hospital and saw people and it was, it was very reactionary. You'd get a call, hey, come to the fourth floor and you'd run to the fourth floor and say, oh boy, I really should have saw this person first first thing. Or, you know, it'd be 4 p.m. and you're like, oh, this person needs to be discharged. Why don't we deal with this earlier? Well, I guess their discharge is now going to have to be delayed another day. That costs the system money. That's bad for the patient to stay another day in the hospital. They may get exposed to see if or whatever else. It's, it's just poor healthcare, poor management. And, you know, you'd You'd call doctors and they'd be post-call and they wouldn't answer. Or, you know, if you were lucky, maybe they'd scribble something or they put a Google Doc somewhere, which is not secure and, you know, not particularly effective. And so it was really, really frustrating. And you knew that harm was coming from it, um, both minor, minor, day-to-day. Every time, you know, uh, that handover process doesn't happen, you're introducing harm. Um, and you got to do things in a better way. And so I remember coming home one day and feeling particularly frustrated, calling up uh, my good friend, Rich Stramko, who was also a doctor. And um, I said, hey, Rich, listen, uh, you know, maybe we could just build a handover application and give it out to the doctors for free. And, uh, you know, it, it really make a big difference. And so we did. We contacted some other friends, put this together. Within a month, we had an application. We gave it out for free. Within a couple of months, we had 700 of our colleagues around the province uh, using it. And, and then we got shut down because we hadn't, you know, gone through the proper 
privacy and security measures, which to be fair, we were woefully ignorant of at the time. But it was just that young hubris and that saying, well, we can change things. Why don't we change things? Why don't we use technology to make a difference? And so it was a great learning experience. And, you know, shortly after that, I, um, I joined uh, Medio Telehealth. A good buddy of mine at the time had launched the first telehealth application in, um, in British Columbia. And he said, hey, you know what? You're, you're pretty passionate about changing things and you have this background in technology. You know, come, come help us build this. And, and that was really an amazing ride because, uh, you know, telehealth back then wasn't what it is now. Um, but we kind of scratched our heads and told ourselves, listen, you know, you have your laptop or your computer. It has a camera. It has a microphone. Why don't you just use telehealth to see patients who are remote in communities that usually don't have access to care or patients who have disabilities or mobility issues who can't necessarily, you know, come see as readily or even a lot of time for follow-up. It's a five-minute follow-up. Why should somebody get in their car, be stuck in traffic, look for parking, pay for parking, wait, you know, half an hour, an hour for their appointment? So we built it out, and almost immediately we had two things happen. One was incredible adoption, but two is a lot of backlash. There's actually a Globe and Mail article uh, from the time that I saved where it was the college and the ministry you know, saying how bad telehealth was for yep. patients, yep. how irresponsible this is of doctors to use it and, um, you know, threatening punitive um, consequences for using it. And, you know, six, seven years later, look at where we're at and how, you know, integral it is to us being able to provide effective, safe care to patients. So it's nice to see that. But at the same time, it shows how woefully ignorant we can be and how terribly conservative we are in healthcare in terms of, well, the amount of times I'm sure you've had this, I've had this where you have some of your colleagues saying, well, this is how we've always done it. I did it this way. I trained this way. You know, why, why don't we do it this way? It's good enough. Um, and I think it's, it's disappointing because in an industry where, you know, us in the military really are the only two industries where you can actually harm people, where you can cause death. You know, we should be aiming for exceptionalism, not just good enough. And for the first time in a long time, we have the tools and the technology to provide incredible care to patients. And patients see this in their day-to-day. -day. You know, a lot of nurses and doctors and healthcare practitioners go home and, you know, everything's automated through their phone, you know, their lights, their door lock, they have analytics on this and that. And then, you know, when it comes to provision of care, it's, uh, where, where's my results? Where's, where's my data? Where's my, you know, patient portal? Where's my, you know, how come I can't interact with my healthcare practitioners in a more effective way? How come we can't deliver care more effectively? Um, and so it's a big point of frustration, I know, for, for a lot of people. And I think that the exciting part is that we're, we're at a place where we can finally do that. So long story short, anyways, I'm kind of veering off a little bit. But, uh, you know, we, we built out that telehealth. It got bought out by a bigger company. And I kind of moved on after that. And um, after that, I got recruited by uh, Vancouver Coastal Health. Uh, the, the medical director and the chief medical officer at the time came to me and said, hey, we got this big Cerner project. Uh, they called it CST at the time. And uh, what they were doing was going from paper records to electronic records across Vancouver hospitals. Uh, Vancouver Coastal, PHSA, and PHC are the big three health authorities that we have here. And they said, hey, you know what? You've done, you've done some of this this work in the past and you have this um, tech background and 
wanting to come be the associate CMIO uh, for this project and help us get this up and running. And on one hand, I said to myself, oh, this, this is amazing. This is an amazing opportunity. And of course, we should be going to electronic records for paper. You know, it's, it's crazy that most of our hospitals, even today in 2022 in this country, are still on paper. Um, you know, who, who is operating that way? Um, and essentially, um, but on the other hand, uh, they had spent at that time over $700 million on a project that was failing and a system with Cerner that wasn't particularly popular. So you're always hesitant about jamming technology down people's throats. I think that's another piece that we need to be careful about, that not all tech is equal. And, you know, a lot of the shortcomings of technology and healthcare and the reasons why it hasn't been adopted as readily is because, you know, you look at Epic and Cerner, which are like the Coke and Pepsi of electronic health records worldwide. And those are the ones that are being adopted in Canada. But you know, their your, their user interfaces are fairly antiquated. The the workflows are difficult. There's a lot of clicks. It's death by a thousand clicks. There's all these pop ups. It's not intuitive. Um, it's tough to use and it's frustrating. And it's actually less efficient than paper. So, you know, we're not surprised that as practitioners say, well, we don't want to use these. But at the same time, we're stuck because having data digitized and being readily searchable and used for analytics and to improve logistics and patient care is a no-brainer. So that was the conundrum. But ultimately, I said, you know what? The benefits are greater than, than the harm, and obviously, we have to move in this direction. So I did that for about four years and helped coordinate many of our hospitals um, go live digitally um, with a team of other healthcare professionals and administrators and, and tech folk. And then um, I kind of, a couple of years back, said to myself, well, you know, I was pretty frustrated by, by a lot of the tech that I saw. And I, I thought, you know, things are moving very slowly, too slow. Um, and a lot of the tech that is being implemented isn't necessarily the best for practitioners. And um, at the time, I had also started my own outpatient practice with some, uh, some colleagues. And we had gone through using different EMRs, and they were all pretty bad. I mean, they were, they were really painful to use, took hours and hours to learn how to use them in training, and you still were there scratching your head saying, how come I can't figure out how to do a prescription? You know, I'm like, I have 12 years of university. Uh, yes. I'm like, this is embarrassing. You know, so embarrassing. Yeah. And he kept having to call and be like, hey, sorry to bother you again, but how do I e-fax this prescription again? Or And they're like, what are you, an idiot? And I'm like, I guess so. <laughs> and, you know, I'm like, how can I not figure out how to do basic things on these systems? Um, and how come every time a locum or a trainee comes, same problem, they're like, hey, uh, what are we doing here? And so they're half using paper, half using electronic, which <clears throat> we know that's not a good way of doing things. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, so essentially after using a bunch of different systems, I kind of same thing. I said to myself, well, why don't we build our own? And I remember uh, my buddy and, and who's now my co-founder, Rich Tramco, looking at me and saying, what, what the heck do we know about building an electronic health record? And I was like, well, look at this, this crap here. I mean, you know, what does anybody know, right? <laughs> Clearly, um, nobody's really figured it out. And why don't we take a shot at it? In worst case, we fail. And, you know, even that worst case, we learn a lot from it. And so I said to myself, um, you know, my, my biggest fear always is not trying. I'm not, I'm not too afraid about failing. I think it's that not trying, that regret of what if. 
And so I said, well, let's, let's try it out and let's build something. And, um, you know, we can use it ourselves and see where that goes. And that's where really Aria was born from. Um, and, uh, you know, we then leveraged the expertise of another one of our friends, Rich Vandegreen, who was another co-founder and then other colleagues and friends over time to help build the product and build the company and grow it. And now we're Canada-wide um, in Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia, New Brunswick, at least. Um, so not all Canada, but a lot of it. And um, and a lot of this has just been growing through word of mouth, actually. So that's been a really, really exciting journey. I hear it's hard to break through into Quebec. They have, uh, they're very specific about bars. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have yeah, some follow-up yeah. questions. That, that's very fascinating, Sam. And um, just starting with the, you mentioned you did a health informatics degree in uh, Portland, correct? How was that some, I guess, how new was that degree? Is it, has it been going on for a while or is this a new science or newish science? I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, great question. It's fairly new. You know, at the time, I only was able to find five you know, reputable universities that had that degree as a graduate degree. And, um, you know, uh, most of them were Ivy Leaguers and OHSU was the only major one that was fairly close to Vancouver uh, and a good school, but it was a pretty new thing. In fact, when I remember talking to colleagues, they were like scratching their heads saying, well, what's that? Clinical informatics, health informatics. Right. Why would we even use that? What would we do with that? Uh, it's grown quite a bit since then. Uh, particularly because the role of CMIO um, and, you know, its nursing equivalent have become more and more uh, important as, you know, hospitals and different healthcare systems have digitized to have uh, healthcare professionals who also understand the technology side of things being involved in the implementation and sustainment of these systems. And did they, because you mentioned something that's really hard for me as well. I've been through a lot of EMRs because I have, I've been through a lot of practices and they all seem like they don't take into account the way your brain works. Yeah. Like did they, did they teach you about UI design and health informatics or how did you, because I'm, I'm looking at, at your EMR and it's, it's very clean. How did you come to coming up with a UI? Like what, what did you base it on? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I based it on. A lot of it was 15 years of frustration. Every every time I'd, you know, every time I'd, I'd be rotating through a different doctor's office, and and I was lucky enough to to work all over California, and you know, I uh, spent time in the Northwest Territories in Yellowknife doing community work all across BC when I was doing my locums as a young staff, you know, Quebec and in France and blah blah blah, and so. I'd be excited every time I go to a conference, I'd see a booth and they'd say, Hey, here's a new EMR. And I'd run over and I'd be like, let's take a look. And every time I'd be disappointed, I'd be like, ah, this is, this is really bad. This is really painful. And I just kind of take mental notes. I'd scribble some things down. And I remember when we first decided to build our own, I designed the wireframes. I kind of sat down and I said, well, this is what I would love it to be like. This is what I think would be the least painful, most efficient, intuitive way of doing things. This is how, you know, a doctor's brain works. And I tried to design it not just for internal medicine. I tried to design it for, well, what if I was a GP? What if I was a surgeon? You know, our, our workflows aren't as different as we think. We're more similar than we are different. And, you know, my goal was to really work with my co-founders and other colleagues and friends and, and say, listen, let's build something that's ubiquitous for healthcare practitioners. 
Because at the end of the day, when you boil it down, we all provide healthcare universally in a very similar way. One, we view information. Two, we create new information. Uh, three, we share that information. And then four, we do some kind of billing. And you know that workflow is ubiquitous. So once you boil it down to that, you say, well, how can we avoid a million buttons everywhere? How can we avoid a million pop-ups? How can we get that flow going in a meaningful manner? And um, and yeah, so that's that's really how I was born out of a lot of pain and suffering, I guess. Like all good things, you have to go through pain and suffering before. But yeah, I like that. I like that mention of workflow because you're right. The workflow is similar. You know, when you took that course in health informatics, were you, were there a lot of doctors taking it, or were you sort of the exception? Do you know? You know, um, there wasn't that many. We were definitely in the minority. It was okay. mainly allied health and nurses, and quite a few folks who weren't even uh, medical um, or had any formal healthcare training or background. Uh, I think, and I hope it's changed since that time and it's grown. But yeah, it, I was one of the few docs at the time. Uh, that, that's excellent. I've, I've got a follow-up question regarding telemedicine because I'm really interested. Um, uh, again, I work mostly in Quebec and telemedicine was a big no until the pandemic. The pandemic, as horrible as it is, is the only is we've been butting our heads with, with the government to get telemedicine going because Ontario had been doing it in a rudimentary level. And I think obviously BC had been doing it for a while. Um, but the p- pandemic is what pushed it into being a f- possibility do you, do you why do you think there was so much resistance from the east coast like was tele, telehealth more accepted in in the west coast like vancouver alberta is there a difference in sort of the two parts of canada and why do you think there there was a difference because i felt like it was a no starter at all in quebec yeah. it's a great question you know i love quebec i love montreal i grew up there it's my home it'll always have a place in my heart but there is a cultural difference between the East Coast, and by East Coast, I mean Quebec, versus the West Coast in British Columbia and California. You know, British Columbia is more similar to California than it is to Quebec, Ontario, in a lot of ways. And when I first moved out here, I almost didn't really understand. I was pretty naive in terms of how culturally different it would be. Um, you know, and you know, there's always the stereotypes. Sure, more people eat healthy and they do yoga and all that stuff, you know, and less people go out till 3 a.m. because they want to wake up early and go hiking. That that's a bit of a stereotype, but it's kind of true. When I first moved here, yeah, I remember one of the first people I became buddies with, he he calls me up 7 a.m. on a Saturday. I'm like, Jesus, why are you calling me at 7 a.m. on a Saturday? What's wrong? Are you okay? And he's like, oh, I'm going for a hike. Do you want to come? I'm like, what? And, and I'm like, well, maybe. How long is the hike? He's like, eight hours. I, I hung up. I was like, wait, eight hours to walk uphill? Uh, so... <laughs> So it's one of those things where there are cultural differences um, that are, you know, again, I'm, I'm exaggerating. They're not as, as big as you think, but they are there. And one of them is the fact that when I was training at McGill, McGill is a wonderful institution with a lot of history and a lot of pride. And I took pride in training there. It was a wonderful program. But my biggest frustration was every time I'd come up with an idea, you know, I remember when I came back from California and I, I talked to one of the, the older docs who I respected a great deal and thought he was a wonderful person and physician. I said, hey, they're doing this thing called morning report. We should maybe do that. It was really good for education. It was really this and that. He looks at me and says, morning report. I didn't have morning report and I turned out just fine. And I was like, man, this guy's one of the good ones. And this is the response that I get to something as you know simple as let's just meet every morning for an hour and go through these case studies. and. You know, 
the, the thing at some of these institutions, and especially in Quebec and at McGill, um, they have a certain way of doing things. They have a certain culture. We've always done it this way. And look how great we are. And let's continue it that way. And that always frustrated me because I'm, you know, I'm more the mindset of let's keep improving, both personally and as an organization. Constantly want to get better, want to improve. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing to be, you know, open about your shortcomings and to be critical and to grow from that. And I don't, I didn't see much of that in Quebec and at McGill. And it was a big point of disappointment and frustration for me, which is why I left. You know, I think 60% of my graduating class left Quebec. I remember, uh, you know, we looked at the data at the time, you know, a lot of folks moved to Ontario. Some of us moved to Alberta, BC, but, you know, obviously there were politics and there's other things, as we all know, going on in Quebec that, um, you know, aren't always super friendly for, for healthcare practitioners. Um, and there's, you know, there's that culture of, you know, politically also just do what I tell you, right. It's, uh, it's a little bit more old school that way, but, um, but, you know, when I, when I went to California, when I, when I got to BC, um, there's always been more of a sense of innovation and more of a sense of openness. Um, and maybe that stems from the fact that there isn't that much history. There isn't that much culture. It's, it's fairly new. There's, there isn't that sense of, well, this is how we've always done things because, you know, it, it hasn't been around. It's like compare the Canucks to the Habs. If you, know, you want to use a hockey analogy, right? I'm a huge Habs fan. And I mean, listen, 110 years, 120 years, 24 cups. Listen, you know, it speaks for itself. You, you get here, Vancouver has a one and, you know, they've only been around since the seventies. <laughs> no, that, 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 that's right. Uh, I left cause, cause I've been to Vancouver a couple of times and it's, it's amazing. And uh, one of my, I did the grouse grind uh, once and I, and I felt like, Oh, this is such an achievement. And my friend, was like, oh, we do this every weekend. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but oh yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, uh, it's, the, the cultural difference is interesting, but I, I'm gl- in a way I'm glad that telehealth was pushed through because um, as a, when I was, when it was in the midst of the pandemic, I was, I did a bit of, and I talked, I talked about this with, with you, Sam, but I did a bit of um, virtual care where there was an app. I think it was through Babylon health, which is, uh, which is, you know, another EMR in Ontario. And I was, it was so amazing to see a patient just on their phone in the, in the middle of the day or on work, you know, I have this small issue. Can you resolve it? And 80% of the time you can, and you've saved, that patient three to four hours a day missed of work and fighting parking you've saved yourself hours and hours of work um so i'm a true i'm a believer in in telehealth and virtual care so your platform i'm curious so the way it would work is is you have an inbuilt virtual care system where your camera turns on Is, is that the way it works how does it work exactly yeah, great question. You know, I've, I've been lucky that I've worked with so many different telehealth groups over the years and building out telehealth. And so, you know, every time you do that, you learn something in terms of what folks did well, what they didn't do well. And, and you know, one of the things that I've seen is that a lot of companies build their own telehealth independent of the electronic health record, which I think is problematic because then when you're doing telehealth, you do have to scribble down some notes. You often have to give a prescription or a requisition. And then there's duplication of work. So, from a practitioner standpoint, you know, I remember early on seeing this and it'd be rejected because practitioners would say, well, I'm already busy. This is going to create more work. Just tell the patient to come see me. And because of the fact that the ministry and, you know, the, the college wasn't super supportive of telehealth and they put out, 
you know, I know here in BC, they said, we don't want any virtual walk-in clinics. So they said that that there will be repercussions if you do that. Now, obviously, we now have virtual walk-in clinics. And I think they are good for patient care within within a scope that's limited. But exactly as you said, it does have its place. Uh, You just have to be responsible how you provide that care, just like any other setting. Um, And, you know, we were lucky because we had the fee codes. The reason why I think telehealth adoption was earlier than Quebec and prior to the pandemic to a certain degree is unlike Ontario, which allowed it. You know, Quebec said you're not allowed. Ontario said you're allowed, but we're not going to pay you for it. And BC said we have fee codes and you can use it, but we kind of don't want you to do it too much. Right. And uh, and I think that that's probably why there was more innovation in BC and to lesser degree in Ontario. But the reason with this, the, the telehealth itself was it was di- separate from your EMR, even TELUS Babylon. Uh, so Babylon was bought by TELUS. And then they've tried to integrate it within the electronic health records. And from what I've heard, there's, it hasn't been the smoothest. <laughs> I've worked with both. I've worked with Alice and, and Babylon. They have not, no. Yeah. <laughs> so what we did with ARIA was um, when the pandemic hit, we said, well, let's make sure that we have a fully integrated virtual platform. So we built our own native telehealth. And the way that it is, is, you know, you look at these pain points. So one is from a physician standpoint, it needs to be seamless. So you go to your scheduler. You click new schedule or new appointment, you pick the patient, you pick the time, and you select telehealth. That's it. That's all you do. And, and you've just interacted with your schedule. And often it's the MOA who's done that for you. So as a doctor, all you do is you, you know, log into your EMR, you log into ARIA, it's 8 a.m., your first patient shows up, oh, telehealth. And there's a little link there. You click on the link and it pops up. If the patient's there, that link will change the color and say patient has arrived. You click on it, pops up. You don't have to download anything. You don't have to do anything. Your EMR is right there and you have a separate screen where you can interact. And so you can do everything that you normally do. It's all documented in your EMR at, while you're doing your telehealth. So the practitioner is super happy because it hasn't really changed their workflow. They've literally just clicked a button. Now for the patient, the patient gets a link uh, via email. They click on that link. They get reminders via email as well for the appointment. And then you know, Bob's your uncle. They click on that link. It opens up a window and they they then can interact with the practitioner. So they don't need to download anything. Because I remember using telehealth in the past and designing and saying, well, why does the patient have to download this, download that? Why does, why do you, that's, you need to make it foolproof because a lot of folks, who, you know, aren't computer savvy. And a lot of our patients are a bit older and they may not be as comfortable with technology. That's changing quite rapidly, actually. Um, but it still is somewhat of a barrier. And I think you really, when you design these things, especially from a patient-centric point of view, it has to be two, three clicks, simple, easy, foolproof for it to really be adopted. And that's that's what we've done with Aria. That's excellent. I'm curious, um, because you probably know more about this, but given that I think this technology is going is going to be used more and more, do you what are the issues regarding privacy using virtual care uh, or recording encounters have you do you have any opinion on that like are people at some point would that would it be necessary to record your encounter with the patient just for record keeping and legal reasons do you have any thoughts on that yeah you know it's a great question there's been a lot of talk about this or at least i've i've read a lot and discussed a lot with with different um various colleagues about this where I remember 10 years ago, um, I read about, I don't, I think it was Intermountain Health, but I may be mistaken. That's a center in in Utah in the US that does some pretty innovative stuff. And they're fairly renowned for it, where they had physician's assistants 
who had iPads, which was a big deal at the time, 10 years ago, going around. <laughs> wow, and, iPads. <laughs> wow, iPads, amazing. But, you know, that was all the craze. Look at these iPads in healthcare, amazing. And um, they were essentially working as scribes. So the concept of a scribe is one that's fairly ubiquitous in America now, but hasn't really caught on in Canada, where, you know, practitioners spend, the data shows that about 25 to 35% of their time documenting. And a lot of that documenting is dictations or writing your note, et cetera. And so, you know, uh, it started out by saying, well, why don't we use scribes, human beings who walk around on, on essentially iPads or uh, mobile laptops, these the wows or cows, you know, uh, workstations on wheels as they call it. And so, and do that. And then over the past 10 years, that's become digitized where, Hey, why don't we use AI? Why don't we use different, you know, language processing tools to, uh, document that interaction and then create the note for you. And then that's kind of evolved into, well, if you're doing things via telehealth, why don't you record it? If you do record it, why didn't you then take the interaction that was there? And that can naturally put together a script that you can then use as your note. It's it's a no-brainer in terms of the ultimate evolution of the physician note. You know, um, there's this great um, lecture I had back in the day when I was doing my master's about the history of documentation. It showed you what a medical note looked like, you know, at the turn of the 20th century. Right. And you compare that now, right? And, you know, we've unfortunately just taken what we did on paper and digitized it almost yeah. verbatim. Yeah. But the reality is that the technology that we have can really change things in a fundamental way in terms of how we record things, document things, save physicians time to do that through technology, and then medical legally make it safer. Because right now you have to trust the note that was scribbled that that's accurate. But if you actually have a recorded interaction that's then digitized in a meaningful way, um, that's maybe safer in a lot of ways too, and more accurate, to be fair. Now, the problem here is, I think, partially technology. The technology isn't fully there with professor front-end speech recognition and the AI tools to then, you know, parse that out and put it back together in a meaningful way. Um, but it is coming very quickly. And I know a couple companies that are doing some really interesting things there. And then the other piece is the culture. And culture in medicine has always been the bigger issue. Uh, there's always this culture of, you know, father knows best, you know, this culture that's very militant, that's hierarchy, you know, uh, I remember one of our old McGill orientation manuals, and he opened it up and it said, obey the hierarchy. I thought it was a joke. I was like, oh, this, this can't be, this can't be legit. But, uh, you know, it was, it was this running joke in med school and residency, but it always has been very, you know, culture is very old school. This is how we've always done things. Um, and if you deviate from it, you get into a lot of trouble as even as staff, right? You just follow the protocols, follow how you do things put your head down and, and, you know, just wait for the best evidence, best guidelines, best practices, um, which in most cases is good, but also does slow down and hamper innovation. Yeah. I imagine, um, I, you know, the note taking, it takes so much time, imagine time you can save, but, and even the, even the fact that you mentioned that, imagine how it's, um, hard to make mistakes right because you can look through the recording and you can see this is what happened this is what i missed or i i really hope that this is in the future i don't know when it's happening but i'm glad to hear that there's some work being done on this um because speaking of saving time i'm curious i was reading through uh, through the website and you know you have those points and you said you know we've saved four to five hours of clinicians time with with our with our ui so what were some of the big points that you changed that, that you worked on to save so much time in terms of note-taking and, and clinical care? 
What was the worst yeah, offender? How about this? What was the worst offender <laughs> in terms of taking time up? Yeah, it's it's a great question. You know, um, we actually did a deep dive into this. So we we built out Aria in a way that we said, what are the essential core functionalities? So <clears throat> really, it was designing a notes page that made sense and integrating that with front-end speech recognition as well as templates for clinical pathways that you can you know have almost like multiple choices and you know click through while dictating while you had static note in there and integrating that in a meaningful way. So I'd seen different different companies and different vendors and systems all doing that to varying degrees of effectiveness. But the note really is something that takes a long time. You don't want to dictate like backend speech recognition where you dictate somebody that manually types that. Then you got to review that a couple of days later to make sure there's no errors. That's very inefficient, very costly. Uh, you know, two is typing the note yourself. Again, for family doctors, it's uh, a bit easier with the soap notes, particularly, but still a lot of family doctors' notes can be pretty long and pretty intricate. And with you know, specialists, you usually type type two, three pages. You can't really type two, three pages for each encounter, and that's why there's more back-end speech there. Um, but with Fesser, you know, front-end speech recognition has gotten better and better and better. And the one that I currently use, I, I use, I've used them modal and dragon mainly over the years. Um, and they've gotten very, very good. Their error rate is, you know, less than 1%. Um, uh, and, you know, that saves you quite a bit of time. But then you're still speaking often for minutes and minutes on end. You right. know, so every time you have an encounter, do you want to be speaking for five to 10 minutes? And that's where you have to create a clinical pathway and digitize it in a meaningful way. But you then, the other step is the, the user can't be dependent on the vendor to create those for them. You have to democratize that process. One of the key things with ARIA was, you know, I was always frustrated when I had to go to the vendor and ask them to do something. It would take time and it would cost money. Um, with ARIA, we said, you know what, we're not going to make money off of digitizing forms for people or creating notes or this and that. We're going to allow them to do it themselves in a meaningful way and democratize that process. So we have a notes engine where you can, you know, for free, use it, create your own clinical pathways, digitize them however you like in terms of multiple choices and checkboxes and clicks and inputs of information. Hey, I'd like these lab informations to come here, this other static information from the profile to come here into my note. And it's, and we've made it to be really simple and easy to do. And that, that's really the clincher where you, once you've blind all of those and integrated them, and then we did testing, you know, we, we actually very recently did this um, to kind of compare and to have objective data. You know, we keep, you know, I've, I've kind of talked to the team. I'm like, well, we keep saying that we're more efficient and, and faster and, and more intuitive, but let's take a look. So we went and uh, a couple of our friends who use different systems and we just said, okay, well, let's try to create the same note in each of these systems and let's time it. Let's time it. And then let's have a subjective, you know, experience assigned to that. So how frustrated were you or how happy were you? And then, hey, this is how many clicks it took. This is how much time it took. And it blew us away because we went, wow, this is a big difference. This is not 5, 10, 15% efficiency savings. This is quite a magnitude higher. Um, and we did the same thing for prescriptions, for example. And you know, uh, we created e-prescribing in a meaningful way that you can have a prescription page where you readily save um, your favorite medications from you know, the Canadian Pharmacopedia database. And, so all you do is you start typing a couple letters, you pick your favorite one, the, the complete order sentence is safe, not just the name of the medication. And then you create a prescription with another click, and then you send that off to their saved pharmacy of choice. So within three clicks, you've essentially sent off a prescription 
um, you know, that's 15 seconds, right? How long does it take to create a prescription on paper and then send it to a pharmacy via fax? Or how long does it take for some of the other vendors? And so, you know, you look at it and you say, oh, well, you know what? It took you 15 seconds on ARIA and maybe it took you 40 seconds or a minute on the other system. Who cares? Well, if you're a GP seeing 40 people a day, that 30 seconds per patient ends up being a lot, right? That's a lot of time savings. Yeah. And then, you know, if you do it on paper, sometimes you do it really quickly so the pharmacist can't read your writing. So then you have to get a fax back and clarification and all that. No, that's great. I, I laugh because my current EMR, which we're changing, is um, I, they don't have that template. So I literally have a, a Word file with templates. I copy and paste, and I change things. I, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm really excited that that exists. Right, so it's, it saves a lot of time, for sure. Yeah. What about some of the problems you're trying to work on currently? Like you've solved, you've obviously you've solved the issue with with taking notes, maybe not solved, but you've made it better. You've made the, the workflow better, but some, what are some issues currently that you're trying to work on that perhaps are harder to solve or maybe what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, I'm thankful that I get to use ARIA myself in my clinical day to day. So that helps with pain points. So, you know, my co-founders do the same thing. And so, and many of our friends are on the system and we encourage feedback and it's nice to be able to use it and have people that you really care about and trust um, and admire their insights to give you feedback and say, well, you can constantly make it better. And a lot of the time in the startup world, there's a sexiness factor. People want to hear certain buzzwords, blockchain, crypto, AI, you know. But what we're trying to do <laughs> at a fundamental level is, you know, what's wrong with electronic health records, what's wrong with technology and medicine is, is bones. The bones aren't built very well. And so we're not doing anything super sexy, but very meaningful because, you know, my day in clinic used to be death by a thousand cuts. My least favorite part of my clinical practice was clinic because it was so painful to create a prescription on the system that I was using. It was so painful to do telehealth billing. Oh my God, I couldn't do my own billing because I was just so many clicks and pop-ups is a disaster. I'm going to just let the billing clerk do this. And so, you know, I do all that stuff now. I send all my own faxes. I do my own billings. I, you know, Everything is integrated. I save so much time for my MOA. I save so much time, uh, you know, back and forth between patients and the, the clinic. And I keep using the system to make it better. Um, and, and that goes a long way. So I think that there's incremental benefits and wins and improvements that constantly happen. But in terms of the big, to answer your question, the big feature, the big piece that maybe is more of a conundrum or more something we need to figure out, I think that the biggest thing that I see that's a point of frustration is the disconnect between the clinic or the practitioner and the information of the patient. Patients more and more want to be able to see their information, understand their information, connect with their practitioners in a meaningful way around that. And they're getting more and more frustrated that that's not happening as quickly as they'd like and as effectively. And I think that, you know, some provinces allow access to results, others don't. Uh, we're lucky here in BC. I think it's a good thing. I know some of my colleagues don't necessarily agree, but you know that, that patients can log in, see their information and the results. Now, on one hand, if they see something abnormal, they may freak out and panic and you know want to immediately see somebody. And then they say, well, listen, this, this doesn't mean anything with outside of context. So there is always that you know drawback to that piece. But there also is the benefit where a lot of the time patients don't get a call back from their practitioner to review results or 
you know, years later or months later, somebody else asked them for this and they say, well, I don't know, call this doctor. Who is the doctor? Where's their practice, right? And so, you know, I've always been a fan and a proponent of the patient being the one who owns their data or has access to their data and shares their data with the healthcare community um, rather than the other way around, which is historically how we've done it. Because patients move from city to city, province to province, practitioners leave their practices or retire. And, you know, we have the technology to, you know, everybody has these care cards. Well, why don't you have an RFID chip? And, you know, that gives you access to all of your information. And anytime you've had an echo or an ECG or blood work done, that's all pooled. We have these, you know, <laughs> these databases give the patient access to that and then allow the patient every time they go see a practitioner to enable access and sharing of that information with them. Because it is good for practitioners too. think of the amount of times that you've chased after, hey, you had an echo when? 2017, who did it? You don't know. Geez, okay, well, let's try to, you know, get that and figure out what it showed. And then, you know, it slows down care. It causes harm. It's silly. And we have the technology to do better. To, it's the policy that's, that's kind of, you know, behind a bit. But I think that having that in place will be game-changing. Having patient portals or some kind of way of, you know, uh, giving patients better access and ownership of their information digitally will will be game changing. Yeah, and, and Quebec actually is 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 very much pushing that. In fact, they they have it's not perfect. We still there's a hybrid between paper and 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 digital. But they um, you as a doctor you get a USB key now, and if uh, you can access any any type of test, lab work or imaging that's been done in Quebec, you have access to anywhere. You don't have access to uh, if it's been in BC or Ontario, and you know if you want something from Ontario, it takes months. But but there is there is an advance there, and I agree with you. I think I think the patient should have the data because it's theirs, it's their health. Yeah. I yeah. I understand there's anxiety, and that's why I have a follow up question regarding that. So the way it works with your EMR, let's say there's a result, how do you? Can you securely send messages to your patients to tell them about this? Like, oh, Mrs. So-and-so, your leukocytes are a bit elevated. Don't worry, we'll do repeat tests just through through messaging that's secure. Is there a way to do that? Yeah, exactly. So that's been the biggest um, priority for us. And we've just built out a patient portal that has those features. And so essentially, it's being able to share notes, results, forms securely. Uh, through from your EMR to the patient portal. So we've designed the system where I can be on, you know, seeing somebody virtually uh, through telehealth and say, hey, listen, you know what? I'm going to send you your requisition. Which up until very recently, and for most vendors in most situations, is come pick it up at the clinic or I'll fax it off to your uh, laboratory. The laboratory loses it a third of the time. Patient's like, oh, my doctor's an idiot. They didn't fax it. They come back to you angry. Like, I swear I sent it. I sent it. And um, <laughs> so... Hey Sam, uh, can I ask you a question? How yeah. how old is facts? How many how techno how old technology is facts? Like seven <laughs> years, seventy years old? I, I swear to God, I can't believe that we're still using facts. It's it's that so is. insane. And when I mention it to patients or just people, just other human beings who are medical, they're like, you're, you're joking, right? You saying why not email? I'm like, oh no, email's not secure. But facts is. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. Just I, I, it's so frustrated with the tax situation. I've actually had, uh, and I'm, I mean, there might be a legal issue there, but I've had pay, uh, pharmacies refuse um, a prescription that hasn't been faxed. 
So if I send it yeah. to a patient through email, yeah. it's not legit. And it's just frustrating <laughs> for everybody involved, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this patient definitely wants some amlodipine, you know, and they're they're trying to yes. you know, get back. Because <laughs> there's a real black market for amlodipine. So. <laughs> but but um, no, no, you're right. I mean, the fax thing is insane. The pager thing is insane. So much of the technology we use, you know, listen, our stethoscope is two tin cups with a string attached between them. Let's, let's call a spade a spade. You know, the, the cardinal fundamental tool that we all walk around, around our necks to identify us. You know, we don't wear white coats as much anymore, but between those two. And so we spread disease with our white coats and then our stethoscopes are two tin cans with a string in the middle. And so, you know, it's ludicrous. It's, it's, uh, but yeah, that's, that's how we do things. Um, you know, why not have, I've been saying this for years, why not just have, you know, uh, an earpiece Bluetooth. And then you, when you listen in, it records instead of, describing a three-on-six holosystolic murmur at the left or right. border, you usually record that and send that to your EMR. And then, you know, right. maybe six months from now, you can listen to it and digitally it can compare the two and say, hey, listen, maybe this regurgitation's gotten worse. That maybe makes more sense and we have the technology for it. Anyways, I digress. It makes a lot of sense. And it just, I had a eureka moment. You're so right. Like, why don't we do that? So let's talk about buzzwords blockchain and virtual reality in the metaverse uh just because actually interestingly enough one of my one of my buddies sent me an email about this this blockchain medical company and their approach i'm just i'm curious i i don't know i sort of understand technology but not not well enough but they're saying that you can secure the patient's information on the blockchain and then the patient just takes it with them i guess they have an id card and um and goes to any type of provider and the provider has access. My question to you is, is using blockchain uh, sort of a, uh, a meme, as they say? Is it, does it offer anything more than what we have now as technology? Is it actually something that you're in, that, that's interesting to you? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that a lot of the time, these are buzzwords. And right. I haven't seen meaningful use of it in healthcare so far. That being said, blockchain technology is the future when it comes to securing this information in a meaningful way. That's fairly clear based on, based on my understanding of, of technology itself. But the reason why I'm not jumping to do work on that platform or in that sense is, you know, I think that we have bigger problems. I think that like we talked about, you know, faxes and pagers and our EMRs that are still broken. And the basic way that we document data and share data and interact with our technology systems is so broken and has so much room for improvement um, that I think that we we need to start with fundamentals, um, but can do this too in parallel for sure. And I think it's a no-brainer that that's where things end up. It's just a question of a lot of the time, I'm maybe a bit of a skeptic when it comes to when somebody says, hey, listen, I have this AI piece in healthcare that's going to change the way that you deliver medicine. I'm like, yeah, I could do something better than EFAX because that would be great. Oh, so they're so, also apparently selling NFTs, medical NFTs. It's the flavor du jour. It's very yeah. chic. helps raise incredible amounts of money. But I'm always a bit of a skeptic in terms of how genuinely do you care about improving healthcare? Um, 
And if so, then great, listen, let's work together. Let's, let's do this. Right. But a lot of the time I question, you know, um, maybe the sincerity when I hear some of, some of these, some of the, the ideas that some of these startups are, are trying to push. So this has been a great conversation. I have a, two questions a bit more about the future. Uh, one of them is AI and AI-assisted diagnostics. Do you have any opinions on that? If you don't, that's all right. I'm just, I, I know you're, you're probably more into the future of medicine than I am. So I'm curious what your, what your opinion on that is. Yeah, it's another tool that's going to be game-changing. It already has in some ways. Um, I think that uh, it was interesting because I literally just finished reading this book um, about AI and its future. It's uh, it's written by Henry Kissinger and um, co-authored by uh, Eric Schmidt, who is the former CEO of Google. So really insightful because a lot of time when you read about AI, there's an emotional context to it. Oh, you know, robots going to you know ruin humanity or, hey, no, this is going to change everything in this amazing way. But looking at things in a very non-reactionary, pragmatic sense. I think within healthcare, we're still a ways away, um, but also depends on how you define AI. There's a lot of different definitions. You know, it's, it's, it's like anything else. Are we talking about the same technology? Because it's quite broad. Um, and so what kind of nomenclature are we, are we using to define AI and how it would assist? Because there's a million and one ways that it can make healthcare better. And the ways that right now I've seen it applied and used in a meaningful way is um, through visual recognition. So, you know, we know the computers, the same way that a calculator can calculate better than most humans, uh, you know, a computer can recognize visually things better than a human can again and again and again. So in dermatology, for example, with recognition of melanoma and different types of skin cancers and skin conditions, you know, we already have systems that can do that as well, if not better than people. Same thing in radiology, right? You're looking at a chest x-ray. Is this a nodule? Is this consolidation? What is it? We already have that technology. Again, it's it's not good if you're a radiologist or a dermatologist, maybe. I still think you need the human component. Um, so I don't think it'll ever fully replace a person or a physician or healthcare practitioner. But I think it's an immensely valuable tool that already we have in certain fields that maybe haven't been adopted as much, but are beneficial and can be incredibly beneficial for patient care. So when it comes to AI-assisted you know, visual recognition of different phenomenon. We already know that that's, you know, look at facial recognition software, right? You know, it's, uh, it's incredible um, what it can do, you know, frightening too in other ways, depending on its application. But it's, you know, so those, those kinds of things. When it comes to diagnostic tools, um, that's going to be more interesting to see how it takes a large amount of data and puts it together in a meaningful way. Um, you know, as an internist, that's, that's a piece that's interests me and, and we'll see how that evolves. Um, but there's a lot of different facets to it. And I think that there's really interesting work being done by a lot of different people and I applaud them and I'd love to work with as many of them as I can in the future. Um, but again, it's kind of, you know, for me right now, I'm, uh, really focused on the bones of it. <laughs> you gotta fix, you gotta fix the, the foundation before you move on to the other exactly. issues and there's, there's exactly. So I'll finish off, Sam, by asking you just for our listeners, you know, it's being a doctor, you know, we, we were very busy, busy lives. We have families, we have patients, we have notes, we have paperwork. How do you find the time and how do you keep yourself sane um, being an entrepreneur like yourself? I'm curious because I know this takes time and uh, I know how hard it is to be an internist and a doctor in a hospital. So 
any advice to people who want to be problem solvers like you just to prevent burnout and keep saying in this in this environment yeah yeah it's a great question i mean you know a, a lot of people ask me like well how do you how do you be a doctor full-time and, and run a company full-time and still have a life well, i don't know how much of a life i have but uh <laughs> but uh you know the truth is that um i love what i do and because of that it doesn't feel like work and especially with the company you know clinical medicine has always been a passion it's the reason why you know you go into med school it's a long it's a long haul you know undergrad was difficult med school was challenging it's 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 a marathon and you can't really get through it um if you don't love what you're doing you know and, and still be happy anyways and and i never you know, at no point in my training, there were stressful times, but there was never a time when I was like, oh, why am I doing this? I've always been very thankful to have gotten into medicine, to be in medicine. Um, and, you know, when, when you do love what you do, it makes a big difference. I do think that now almost 20 years later, you know, you do get bored sometimes. You're like, oh, I'd like new challenges. And I think that's, you know, I'm in my late thirties and I've been staffed for almost 10 years now. And, and that's where over recent years, finding new challenges within healthcare to keep improving it, which is a passion has kept me going and has kept me happy and sane. And I think with Aria and a lot of the other work, you know, within the startup world and consulting and, and this and that, you know, it's not, I don't see it as work, you know? So when I finish my day at clinic and then I spend the next five, six hours after that working on, you know, the company, um, it gives me energy. It makes me happy. It's, uh, it, it provides me with meaning because um, I feel like we're doing uh, we're genuinely doing good to help improve um, healthcare. Um, so, so that's and, and that's what I would recommend to people out there. If there's, if you're sitting around listening to this, or if you're ever sitting around laying around saying, "Hey, listen, you know what? This bothers me," or I think we could do better, or if you're passionate about something, just do it. Um, it's it's tough. It's not easy. You know, um, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs. Uh, make sure you got good people around you to lean on as you go through the downs, because that's really what keeps you going through it. Uh, and with all these different projects that, that I've done over the past couple of years, I'm lucky that I've had, you know, some of my best friends around to be able to say, oh man, when you, when things aren't going well, it's, it makes a difference, but it's also incredibly fulfilling and meaningful. And even if you fail, you're going to learn something. Even if you, you know, the first time we did this with our handover project or the virtual ward, we failed. We failed pretty miserably. And, uh, you know, we had some successes, but we learned so much from it, right? And um, and I think that if you're doing it for the right reasons, if you're not doing it to get rich quick, there's a lot of people in the startup world who look, you know, they read they read about the kind of money that's being thrown around. Um, you know, the reality is that, that that won't really keep you going, but what will is if you're passionate about it and uh, and do it because you don't want to look back and regret things, right? So that's uh, that would be my two cents on that. Okay, I think I think uh, the bottom line is find something that gives you energy, it doesn't take it away, yeah. and find people who support you, which <laughs> sometimes yeah. is harder than not than than others. But listen, Sam, I really appreciate the time you took. So Aria Health is available, you said in in BC, in uh, go in Ontario. Which other provinces are you are you are you guys uh, in? in Alberta and oh. in New Brunswick? Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully one day in, in Quebec too. Listen, bring it, bring it to Quebec. I'd love, I'd love to use it. <laughs> it, it sounds listen, I'd love to show it to you. Listen, it's, I, I love Quebec. I love Montreal, uh, you know, and I love Miguel. So it's, uh, you know, again, to anybody listening, listen, guys, uh, 
it's uh it's a beautiful place it's great stuff and hopefully we can uh spend some more time there and expand our area there yeah you know we, we were not we're not we're not saying anything but we I, I grew up in Montreal it's an amazing city I love going back there and it's 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 so depressing with the pandemic I can't go there as much as I can but they have their ways and Ontario has theirs and BC has theirs so we're just we're just ripping on that but Sam thank you so much for everything um and uh are you going for an eight kilometer hike after this is that is that what you're doing in Vancouver not in a million years <laughs> all right <laughs> all right take care Sam thank you again hey thanks Dimitri for having me on